This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Next week, thousands of students across the University of Hawaii system are set to resume class online as spring break draws to a close. The administration and the university faculty union met this week to iron out contractual issues on how to migrate all classes online. We talked to Thomas Lee, who's an epidemiologist and on the faculty at the UH Office of Public Health. He teaches global health classes. One is offered online, and he's working to convert the second as a distant distance learning class. I'm in the process of uh, converting the rest of the semester to, or at least until April 13th, 14th, online. And then we'll see, uh, uh, you know, as faculty, I'm waiting for further guidance from uh, my department chair, you know, my dean, and also, you know, where we get all our news for the university president, Lassner, you know, from his press releases in terms of further guidance going forward with how we're going to handle this as as a campus, Manoa, and as a system as well. So this must be doubly interesting then for you. It's, you know, like I mentioned to my students, a lot of times throughout the past month and a half, it's not, I'm not happy about it because it's a very serious uh, situation, public health situation, medical situation. However, you know, as a student and as an instructor, they're they're basically applying what they're learning to real-life situations in real time. And therefore, I can pull... You know, I can connect what's going on with how the education uh, system is getting impacted by this and then show how health impacts education. It's a very unique opportunity as an instructor, especially in my field, to, to use this to teach my students. You know, in terms of how I'm adapting, you know, uh, to this in terms of teaching, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to, to try new things but also, um, you know, once again, making sure that our students are getting what they need and also kind of reassuring them that you know, we, we understand this is a fluid situation. And, you know, you know I, I've read uh, other publications from faculty, at, I think Princeton, where, you know, they're taking different approaches to their philosophy for their class. For example, one is just saying it's credit, no credit. They want them to focus on learning for themselves. And so there's, you know, obviously each faculty member is handling their classes differently, but you know, this is a unique opportunity for, I guess, each of the each of my each of my colleagues to to try something different, especially at, uh, at Manoa. What is it about this pandemic that maybe fascinates you? You know, um, when I remember SARS and MERS, you know, it, it definitely was. They were both very big uh, global health issues. But I think, the, you know, from my perspective, the reason why it's so serious, especially locally, and why we're all paying attention so much to it, is because it's it's happening to us as well, right? It's a lot easier for us to maybe not take it as seriously if it's happening in a place halfway around the world. But the fact that, every, you know, the trends that we're seeing, the epidemiologic trends we're seeing um, in the United States, uh, hopefully we'll get some data soon from, from Hawaii. Um, but for the most part, from, like Dr. Anthony Fauci said from uh, CDC, you know, it, the trends are basically mirroring each other regardless of the location, at least the initial trends, and then depending on what steps each country takes, then, you know, the, 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 the epidemiologic curve will change depending on uh, public health interventions and mitigation efforts. I don't know, you know, what you learned about the different epidemics and pandemic, the bubonic plague and the Spanish flu, and, and how different this might be, because our technology is different, too. Yeah, no, definitely our technology is different. I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist, but things to keep in mind, uh, you know, that, that I've 
told my students to really, you know, whenever they're reading about comparisons between the, the 1918 flu, the, the plague, even SARS and MERS, there, there's two main terms everybody should be aware of, uh, case fatality rate and, and R0. And I think those are two main terms everybody should be aware of. And then you can relate those two terms to every other infectious disease. And then, you know, you know far, far smarter researchers have conducted meta-analyses looking at simulations and, and comparisons of the infectiousness, the R0, and the deadliness, the case fatality rate of, say, COVID, uh, COVID-19 compared to the seasonal flu, the 1918 pandemic, and, and Ebola, and, uh, and all these other very catchy infectious diseases. So drill down on those terms again? Yeah, so R0 basically refers to how infectious a disease is. Um, so, base, you know, so, so basically, if, if, if you're, let's just say you're, you're sick, right, and, and if there's an R0 of, of one, that means that you're going to infect one person. Right? If it's less than one, then you're, there's a ch- you know, the probability that you're going to infect someone is, is less than one. Um, so we're still, and, and R0, even though it's used very simplistically, um, in a lot of news sources, it, it, it's really estimated using complex mathematical models, and there's a lot of assumptions that go into these modeling. So, um, you know, this, you know, we, like we talked about at the beginning, uh, there's a lot of things that are that are in flux. You know, we get data every single hour, which changes what we know about coronavirus, not just in Hawaii but nationally and globally as well. But R not basically refers to the infectivity of a particular infectious disease, and then uh, case fatality rate refers to how, how lethal that is with regards to someone who is diagnosed as a case of whatever infectious disease. There's been lots of talk recently about flattening the curve. Yes. And when you go online to look mm-hmm. at the visuals, oh, it's really interesting. You know, when you think that all those little dots are people and, and you know, you see who they might be infecting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and so, you know, without the clinicians, because, you know, we're getting data from hospitals, right? And so we rely on our, you know, our colleagues in the hospital on the front lines, so the nurses, the doctors, the med techs, to, to get us the diagnoses you know, for each hospital, for each zip code, et cetera. And then, you know, from a public health perspective and epidemiologic perspective, then we're trying to identify, you know, what, what are the trends, you know, for this disease? How is it moving? Are there any particular age groups or, uh, you know, comorbidities that or populations that are disproportionately affected um, by uh, COVID-19? And this week, Governor David Ige uh, tapped... Uh Kenneth Hara, you know, the, the National Guard, yes. uh, Department of Defense, uh, to act as the uh, crisis manager. Mm-hmm. And you have some insight because you're, you're also in the reserves, correct? Correct. I'm in the reserves. However, you know, in terms of um, the chain of command when it comes to FEMA and HAIMA, you know, I can't really speak to that because, you know, uh, you know there's differences between the reserves and, and the National Guard. And General Hara is, is in, the, in the National Guard. Um, and so, you know, my unit is, uh, while we're all technically under the Department of Defense, you know, uh, my chain of command is slightly different than his. And then, you know, th- there's definitely specifics um, in terms of, you know, how FEMA operates and how uh, General Hara would operate now um, that, that I definitely uh, cannot speak to. Okay. But, is there anything, yeah. though, that you can share just from the perspective of someone that's uh, working, you know, with uh, our troops? Because I understand that there's been uh, so far 
as far as I know at this very minute, the one person, a sailor on board a ship in San Diego. So, it, you know, it certainly does raise some concern for uh, our men and women in the, uh, in, the, in the military. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, everything that I say, you know, it, I mean, you know, the standard disclaimer, you know, they're, they're my thoughts only. It's impossible for, for any one population to be completely immune and not at risk for, for coronavirus, no, no matter what steps we take. So as just as a service member, I know that my chain of command has every soldier and every service member's best interest in mind, and they're doing their best to, to make sure they're aware of everybody's health status. And, and if there is a change in status, that, that service member gets the care that, the, that is required. And, you know, we're, we're, make, we're definitely making sure that everybody's checked in upon. Is there anything else that you think would be good to underscore or things that, you know, we should be looking at as, as things change over the next couple of weeks and couple of months? CDC, you know, they, they, it's great. They put out a, a daily YouTube video um, that is a great information source. Definitely CDC and WHO are the two verified health sources that I turn to and I think most medical professionals turn to for up-to-date information in terms of how clinicians should deal with it, how public health professionals should deal with it. And then, you know, it, it basically comes down to trusting guidance from our health professionals, uh, social distancing, washing hands, you know, these little things. While everybody may think they're little on a population level, if we all take that seriously, we definitely can turn the tide flatten the curve, as you said, in, in a much faster uh, timeline than the worst-case scenario. So uh, taking action now that might seem extreme, but we do want to avoid large casualties and uh, kind of stem the tide of the spread of this thing. Yeah, and, and you know, and then I would just recommend looking to le- learn from our history in terms of, you know, lo- looking at Italy and, and Korea and Japan and, you know, like Dr. Fauci said once again, their cur- other epi curve started off the same manner. It's what happened to their curve once each individual country applied their country-specific interventions. That's where we start to see some deviations. So once again, trust our public health professionals, trust the CDC, the NIH, um, Department of Health, um, all of our, our health professionals to, to do their job, and we take our guidance from them and, uh, you know, and then just... Uh, trust each other, be nice to each other, basically. Yeah, I think it's hard, though, when people sometimes hear mixed messages. You know, once again, CDC, they're all highly trained professionals. WHO is coordinating a lot of global efforts. And so they're, they're, the information they're putting out definitely is, is top-notch and trustworthy. That was epidemiologist Thomas Lee, who is an assistant professor at UH Manoa, who teaches global health, and who was hopeful that uh, COVID-19 will spur more interest in folks who want to pursue a degree in public health. Uh, He is also an Army reservist and medical planner with the U.S. Army Hospital. And as the COVID-19 story continues to develop here in the islands and internationally, we're sharing latest developments from the other side of the globe from the British Broadcasting Corporation. This is a coronavirus global update on the 18th of March. I'm Janat Jalil. The number of confirmed cases globally passes 200,000 with more than 8,000 deaths. The World Health Organization has issued a stark warning to countries across Southeast Asia. Scale up all efforts to stop coronavirus infecting more people there. East Asian nations are imposing stricter controls. Taiwan will ban foreigners entering the island after an increase in those infected. South Korea and the Philippines have imposed quarantine measures on new arrivals. We've been talking to Jonathan Head. 
There are real fears, in particular about countries with very large populations like Indonesia, where very little has been done so far to try to contain the virus, or Myanmar, which has a health system that is regarded as one of the most poorly resourced anywhere in the world. Malaysia is currently in a full lockdown. It's not as severe as that in Thailand, but everyone knows what's coming. Southeast Asia is now following what we're seeing in Europe, and in many countries, it's a lot less well prepared for it. The U.S.-Canada border is to be closed to all non-essential travel. President Trump has also announced that more hospital beds are to be made available. Upon request, the two hospital ships are being prepared right now. They're massive ships. They're the big white ships with the Red Cross on the sides. One is called the Mercy and the other is called the Comfort. They're getting ready to come up to New York. We haven't made the final determination as to where it's going to go on the West Coast. Strict travel restrictions have come into force in India, banning any travel from Europe and parts of Asia until the end of the month. Pakistan and Nepal have also announced severe restrictions on international arrivals. Turmoil has continued on the world's stock markets despite big financial aid programmes by the US, Britain, France and Spain to prop up their economies against the impact of COVID-19. Andrew Walker has more. The succession of steps to combat the health crisis means that investors are constantly having to reconsider what the economic consequences will be. Measures set out on Tuesday by President Trump and his Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin did support a substantial rise in the US markets. But the benefit has evaporated as investors wonder whether what governments are doing is enough to limit the economic fallout. There's also been a marked rise in recent days in government borrowing costs in the US and many other countries, as investors anticipate that the response to the crisis will have to be financed by extra debt. Huge queues built up at the border between Austria and Hungary over a deadline for Romanians and Bulgarians to return home. In Spain, police in Madrid have fined nearly 800 people for breaching a virtual curfew. Belgium has become the latest European country to go into lockdown. People can only go out for work, essential shopping and exercise. Reports in Japan say a drug normally used to treat influenza appears to be effective for those infected with the coronavirus. And researchers in Australia are aiming to begin a nationwide trial by the end of the month for what they hope could be a possible cure for the virus. Our health correspondent James Gallagher explained why using existing drugs or combinations of them could help researchers develop a treatment sooner. Pretty much any country that has coronavirus cases is testing drugs in its hospitals. And largely, they're looking to drugs that are already out there, other antiviral drugs or anything that might have antiviral properties. And the reason for that is because if it's already been testing people before, then we know that it's safe to give to people. Now, the question is just, does it work against the virus? Whereas if you start from scratch, you have to prove that it kills the virus and is safe to give to people. So it's like a little head start, really. The problem from some of the early data is that while you're getting some antiviral activity from some of the known drugs in patients who have the virus, it doesn't seem to be as effective in the patients who are the sickest at the moment. That's what some of the early data is showing. That might change in the coming weeks, but um, that's a problem. This year's Eurovision Song Contest and Glastonbury, Europe's biggest open-air music festival, have become the latest arts events to be postponed because of the outbreak. And Nevada has ordered all casinos in Las Vegas to close. The coronavirus pandemic is worrying many of us. Pictures of panic buying in shops only adding to people's stress. So what's being done to help? Here's our reporter, Charlotte Gallagher. 
Australia's biggest supermarket chain, Woolworths, they're having a special hour that's only for the elderly and disabled to go in and buy their shopping in peace. Um, also, Del Hayes in Belgium, they're doing the same. Some supermarkets in the UK, they're rationing products now. You can only buy three. Indonesian police, they're telling shops to ration things as well, things like rice, cooking oil, sugar, instant noodles, things that people really rely on there. Walmart in the US, they're rationing hand sanitizer, which we've seen in the UK as well. And that's the end of this edition of the Coronavirus Global Update. I'm Jeanette Jalil. Until next time, goodbye. for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, serving Hawaii since 1929, offering international service to Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific. Reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll catch up with a local company that was born out of a UH business plan pitch competition. We'll explore how Turnover BNB went from pitch competition to startup acceleration and being recognized as HVCA's 2020 Technology Entrepreneur of the Year. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. In our backyard quiz today, we delve into the history of a defunct professional sports organization that had brief ties with Hawaii. We're talking about the North American Soccer League, which operated from 1968 to 1984. Do you remember when the San Antonio Thunder relocated to Honolulu following two straight seasons of poor attendance in Texas? It was October 1976, and once here, they were renamed Team Hawaii. Though the franchise had moved the islands in hope of attracting more fans, the reality was that the audience turnout was just as dismal as it was in San Antonio. Location was a major hurdle to the team's success. The club had to schedule four or five game road trips to optimize the travel costs, and home games were usually only played against West Coast teams. After one losing season, owners pulled the plug on the club. For today's quiz, can you tell us where Team Hawaii ended up? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
grocery stores have begun offering special senior shopping hours in an effort to protect our kupuna and limit exposure during this health crisis. But for the seniors shut in who rely on Meals on Wheels for a prepared dinner or lunch, rest assured they will still have that lifeline available to them. Lanakila Meals on Wheels tells us it's taking precautions to keep the service going. We talked to Director Lori Lau about the new protocols in place. So our um, Kapuna Wellness Centers are closing for the safety of the participants that we serve. Um, we have so many different seniors that come in um, from all over the place. And while we enjoy having them and while we love sharing, you know, different activities and information and recreation with them, especially with the recommendations of not having any large groups um, congregating together, it's just not the right time to have the, the Kapuna Wellness Centers open. So what about the Meals on Wheels program? What can you tell us about that? So we intend to continue to provide the home-delivered meal. We are definitely ramping up our operations, um, knowing it's going to be such a critical service. In order to protect our volunteers and the participants, we have strengthened and increased the frequency of our sanitation and cleaning program. We've implemented some new protocols um, to require there be social distancing um, between the volunteers and the seniors. Um, now, that doesn't mean that a volunteer cannot assist the senior um, by either taking the meals inside or to the kitchen. Some of our seniors are not able to pick up our meals um, or are uh, wheelchair-bound, bed-bound, right, really need additional assistance. Um, but we're practicing the social distancing to make sure that both the participant and the volunteer is safe. Okay, and are you having any special precautions, gloves, masks for the volunteers? Yeah, so um, as part of our strength and sanitation process, right, um, we are screening folks to make sure that um, they stay home if they're sick. Uh, we're increasing um, hand washing, wearing of gloves, um, sanitizing all of our surfaces, um, all of those sort of things to try to, to make sure that we're preventing the spread of any virus. So how many meals do you prepare a day and you know, prepare and deliver every day? Um, so each day actually varies because um, we're in different parts of the island um, on different days. Um, but we're currently serving um, something, our kitchen is currently preparing something like 1,100 to 1,600 meals for us a day. Wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so as far as uh, anything else that you're instituting just in this uh, time of concern with the COVID-19? You know, I think we're following the basic guidelines that the CDC and the State of Hawaii Department of Health have put out. You know, we make sure that um, we're in compliance with all of the recommendations because, um, again, our participant safety and our volunteer safety are our top priorities. During this time, right, it's really making it clear how important these home-delivered meals are to folks who need them. And so we're doing everything we can to make sure that the service continues um, and in a responsible, safe way so that we can be there for the people that need us most. And you are just one of several um, agencies that provides this service. Uh, is there anything that you're doing, you know, uh, reaching out to other groups, maybe on the neighbor islands? So we have been in contact with the other Meals on Wheels providers, both on Oahu and the neighbor islands, um, and we are coordinating our efforts um, with other emergency preparedness groups and also other senior providers. 
Um, one thing that we're focused on is producing emergency care packages for our seniors. Um, so this would include things like non-perishables and also um, household goods like toilet paper, paper towels, that sort of thing. Um, this is just in case um, there's any disruption to the delivery service um, to make sure that the seniors would have something um, during a temporary shutdown. Okay, so you're also providing some peace of mind. Yes, um, definitely wanting to think about um, as things change so quickly, if there is any recommendation that businesses shut down, um, that we have provided these things to our seniors ahead of time so that they'll have something to take care of them during an interim. Is there anything else that you're doing just to keep that connection going? Uh, you know, if seniors, let's say, don't have the uh, programs that maybe they would normally uh, attend, you know, at your centers, and they're literally homebound for the folks that would rather be out but probably shouldn't because of the, the circumstance here. Yeah, so we're trying to maintain at least a once-a-week check-in with our folks, um, especially the individuals that used to attend the Kapuna Wellness Centers. You know, we know that they really are going to miss um, their friends, they're going to miss the socialization and the connection. Um, so we're trying to maintain that relationship um, by offering a once-a-week check-in with them just so that we know how they're doing and they get any updates from us um, and we can stay in contact with the community. Okay, so you don't want them to get lonely. We don't want them to get lonely and we don't want them to think that we've forgotten them. Okay, and then I'm just curious though with the meals, is it any, any one particular meal that you provide more than, than the next? Is it lunch and dinner or breakfast or how does that all work? Yeah, so the great thing about our meals is that for many individuals, um, they'll take a frozen set of meals from us. Uh, we do do hot deliveries also, um, but the majority of folks um, take frozen meals from us. And so in a frozen meal pack, there'll be a variety of meals. We used uh, registered dietitians and local chefs to create the menu. Um, so you're going to see things that are familiar, that are tasty, and that um, are very popular, like a pork asante, or a hamburger steak, or a shoyu chicken, um, but all of the meals are USDA compliant. Um, we don't add things like um, salt or sugar to our meals um, to make sure that the meals are healthy and um, nutritious for the individuals that receive them. Okay, and then all they have to do is just warm them up, huh? That's great. Yep, and they have the meals whenever they want to eat. So if you're an early bird and you want to take an early lunch, the meals are available. If you're a late-night owl and you want to eat later in the day, um, then they're available. So it's really convenient um, for the seniors to be able to have the meals when they feel like eating. And do we have any idea what the need is statewide? Do we have any good numbers? Well, when we talk about senior hunger in Hawaii um, from our national organization, um, Meals on Wheels America, they talk about hunger in Hawaii being one in six seniors. Um, and when we talk about projections um, for Hawaii's population, right, we talk about things like by 2030, 30% of our demographic um, being seniors. Um, and so certainly there is a large need um, from this growing, aging senior population um, 
and hunger is going to continue to be an issue in the group. And then, uh, gosh, are you doing okay on volunteers and donations? Um, so far, we are hanging in there. Um, we certainly couldn't do this without our volunteers. They're an amazing group of individuals um, and dedicated to helping us day in and day out. Um, at the same time, if people are interested in helping, um, we're certainly accepting new volunteers. And if people are able to contribute um, in other ways to help us make sure that we can continue to provide this service, um, we certainly would appreciate that as well. That was Lori Lau, Executive Director of the Lanakila Meals on Wheels program, talking about how it is keeping its vital service of providing meals to shut-ins during this health crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, celebrating more than 55 years of hospitality, committed to the community with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. KahalaResort.com. When the new coronavirus arrived in California, nurse Kathy Kennedy wanted info about test kits. When we were told that there were only 2,000 kits for the state of California, we all said, we are one of the largest states. With nearly 40 million people. And we only had 2,000? There's no way. Reports from the epicenter of an outbreak on the next Reveal. Tonight at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. The stock market isn't the only thing that's been plunging. The flow of visitors has been, too. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton has our reality check today. Good morning. Catherine. So, yeah, it doesn't look so good in Waikiki and in uh, on the neighbor islands with, you know, the flow of tourists uh, kind of dwindling. Yes, it, it really is. Uh really is dwindling and and remember this is a uh this is the biggest single employment sector in our economy at least on the private side government employment is still bigger including the military but this is our biggest industry uh both hotels and restaurants and they are really taking a hit you know i was uh, mentioning to a friend this is like with all the cancellations it was shades of uh, 9/11 but wow this is worse i think Oh, yes, definitely. I spoke to Carl Bonham, um, the economist who's the uh, head of the U University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, and he he said, yes, this is much, much worse than 9-11. Um, and uh, really a big question is how, how long it's going to last. Right, because I know folks were saying with 9-11, you know, we, we got the confidence back up and uh, – and so things turned around, but uh, gosh, to see the, the drastic measures that uh, countries are taking, um, it's a little scary. It is a little scary. And again, uh, Dr. Bonham is talking about a loss of 9,300 jobs. Um, and he was, he was predicting for basically over the next nine months or so from the hotels and food service um, uh, establishments. And uh, that was before Governor Ige made his announcement yesterday saying, you know, essentially asking people not to come, a pretty unprecedented uh, move by someone in Hawaii, and um, also saying the bars and restaurants should 
well, the bars should shut down and the restaurants should only do takeout. Well, I know in reaching out to the hotel workers union, you know, there are just so many people that are starting to see their hours cut or being laid off just because uh, there's no business. Right. I mean, and that's ultimately it. Regardless of what the governor does, um, if there's nobody com- if there's nobody coming, um, there's no work for the workers. They just there's no reason to for them to to be employed, and the hotels um, cut their hours. Right, and I you know worry about the. The housekeepers, you know, that generally take the buses in to Waikiki, uh, you know, but uh, folks are, are certainly feeling the pinch. You know, we talked to someone over at the unemployment office and they were saying, yep, you know, they saw the spike start last week and it's just, you know, going to get worse. Right. I mean, anecdotally, when you go down to Waikiki and look around, it's it's shockingly uh, quiet down there. Um, and... Uh, again, we just don't know how long it's going to last. That's the big unknown. That's that's the known unknown, as they say. Um, how long is this going to last, which will tell us how deep it is. But it's very broad. It's essentially a, a recession. It's just how long it's going to last. And uh, you reached out to folks in the hotel industry. What are they saying? Well, they're saying that they expect a loss of as many as 45,500 jobs here. Um, they say that, you know, people can come, they can travel. Um, it's a, overblown and an overreaction to some extent. Um, and uh, they really want to be prepared when people start coming back and traveling again, that, be prepared for Hawaii to, to be, again, a major destination that people think about. But in the meantime, the idea is uh, it's still okay to travel as long as you're careful about it. And I know the hospitality workers, uh, you know, their big uh, slogan has been, you know, one job ought to be enough. Uh, and so many of them still work multiple jobs, but you kind of wonder, you hope that that second job isn't tied to the hotel and the visitor industry, so they have something to rely on. No, that's right, Catherine. And this is a really serious issue. I mean, we're already in a situation where a lot of people don't have a huge financial cushion. We've written about this a lot. A lot of people in the community are concerned about it, including policymakers and business leaders. So already, many people in our community, working people who are really contributing, don't have a huge financial cushion. And this just makes it so much worse. Right. And everybody says we need to find, um, you know, other other uh, industries in the economy so we're not so reliant on the the visitors. Well, that's right. And maybe this will uh, push that forward. But yes, the the attempts to diversify the economy haven't happened. We've become even more reliant on tourism in in recent years. And this is uh, where we are. Right. So be kind to folks out there because you don't know what they're going through with the COVID-19. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's very sobering reality check. To read the latest stories uh, on this issue and the effect of COVID-19 on the economy, visit civilbeat.org. We've been asking you how this coronavirus crisis affects you, and we heard your concerns on our talkback line. Ben Schaefer shared this. If we can utilize Italy's uh, experience, that is probably what's going to happen worldwide. The problem in Hawaii is with only 250 tests that you can do a day, that is so inadequate. It's like an F-minus 
as far as uh, health and safety of, of Hawaii citizens by the state government and the federal government. But to think that we somehow are going to skip it, we are one of the main hubs of transportation around the world. So I don't get it how they figured they can just ignore it and oh, we only going to test 250 a day or, you know, we don't think anybody else is saying that. I think that is playing foolishness. So it shouldn't be the businesses that are running the committee that Governor Ige selected. It should be the doctors, the ones who know what they're talking about and understand it and have been through it, and not the politicians and not the business people because they do not care about that. They just want to know where the money is going to come from. So I think we're going to need something for the unemployment because if we want people to be isolated, we need to make sure that there is a fund to carry them over for the next couple of weeks or months. Because if it gets worse and worse, none of the hospitals will be able to handle it. Italy is going through that same thing. We do not have to reinvent the wheel because they've already gone through it already. Let's get on the ball. Let's open our eyes. Let's open our brains and stop being so darn uh, short-sighted and evil as far as doing what you need to do to make these things good. Thank you. This is Larry from the Big Island. This is about Scott Murakami's uh, discussion on uh, the State Labor Department and unemployment. I think the best model is the 2008-2009 Great Recession, not the 2001, um, you know, post-September 11th recession. They refused, the director of the time, Doug Chin, refused the third pedal tranche. That was um, six months of unemployment that those of us who needed that benefit would have gotten it. I believe that we need to focus on the department's performance this time and not allow them to get overwhelmed. Thank you. Lois Anderson of Kauai sent in this email. I really appreciate your continued coverage. Personally, I feel we should close our borders to travelers as we do not have the resources to deal with an outbreak. We live on Kauai and our first two confirmed cases are tourists. Anecdotally, I heard that we have only about 20 ventilators on this little island. And persons I know are saying that the screening at the airports are a joke. These visitors all need to go home. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, Presence, features works by modern and contemporary African-American artists from the museum's collection through July 5th. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Marco Werman. Preparation, as you know, is job one when you're anticipating a crisis. Same goes for our newsroom at The World. Our reporters and producers are following events in every time zone. Their contacts include doctors, epidemiologists, and public policy experts. They deal in the facts that can help us live through a pandemic. Be prepared. Be informed. Listen to the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. 
Earlier in the show, we asked you about a North American soccer league team with island ties. In October of 1976, the San Antonio Thunder moved to Honolulu following two consecutive seasons of poor crowd attendance in Texas. They were rebranded Team Hawaii. Sadly, this franchise didn't perform any better here. Their losing season record for 1977 was 11 wins and 15 losses. On average, each home game drew less than 5,000 soccer fans. This was far below Aloha Stadium's 50,000 seat capacity. Citing poor attendance and high travel costs, team owners pulled out of Hawaii and relocated their athletes back to the southwest. Once settled in Oklahoma, the club became the Tulsa Roughnecks in 1978. And we did have one caller uh, today who said he thought he knew the name because he tried out for the team but didn't make the cut. Well, that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Japan still hasn't announced any changes to the 2020 Olympic schedule, and all this week we've been highlighting different sports. Surfing and skateboarding will be on stage for the very first time. Rugby will make its second appearance in the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Team USA is qualified, and one of its star players happens to have a Hawaii connection. Martin uh, Yosefo was born in Hawaii and grew up in western Samoa before spending his high school years on Oahu, living with relatives in Wahiwa. After graduating from Lelihua High School, he went to Montana State University to play football as a wide receiver and safety, but ended up solidifying his love for the game of rugby. He is currently uh, playing full-time for Team USA's Rugby Sevens team. Producer Jason Ubai caught up with him in January before the start of the Rugby Sevens season. He tells us why he chose rugby over football. I think just it was a, a part of me, from my, mainly because you know my dad was so involved in rugby, and he, like, it's like the way we bonded growing up and still to this day we still talk about you know time we when I first learned how to play the, the game of rugby and how I would get pummeled by all the guys <laughs> bigger than me uh, including him and you know like he always tell me you know if, if he was still in shape like he was back when he was playing he would still outrace me like he would beat me in the foot race so I think that, and like uh, just the, the rugby community alone, like itself, it's just everyone is so welcoming. Like everywhere you go, where's the rugby community? They're they're very accepting people, and you know, it's, it's I've I've done some traveling myself. I've gone to like Australia, Fiji, London, and I've played there. But sometimes, I you know, when I've gone on vacation as well, and and like rugby seems to find me, and like you know, every everywhere I go, the people like they're there's just good people and good people to be around and understand like rugby community, like accept everyone. So I think I cultivate more to that. You make friends and life, like lifelong friends. Can you tell me about uh, the Olympics? I know. So just so I understand correctly, Team USA for the sevens, you guys are qualified already for Tokyo. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, last last year was our best year ever with the USA rugby sevens team. Um, you know, we came, we lost the last in the last tournament to you know win the whole World Series. Uh, that you know, that's 
that was a tough one, but you know, there's, there's good growing pains for us to, you know, kind of push us through this coming, this coming season. But for us, you know, that was the goal going into last season was to, you know, become the top four teams at the end of the season to that, that qualifies, that automatically qualifies for the Olympics. And for us, it was, you know, that, that entails of winning uh, either semifinals or the whole tournament. They're, they're, they're in the season, there's 10 uh, stops in the, in the season. There's six games in each of those tournaments. And for us, it's either competing against, you know, those, uh, those big house teams like New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, and, and uh, England. Us. And that was that was the goal going into last year's season, for in order for us to put our a stamp in for Team USA to make the court, uh, make it to the Olympics, competing against those top nations who primarily you know like play rugby year round, and you know we managed to do that each tournament, and towards the uh, last two. From the middle of the season, we we, we knew that we uh, we had it in the book for us, and the, the goal was to to then you know try to compete for winning the title of, of, the, of the World Series, and and I, I, that's been, been a process for us and each of you know us individually as well as just setting those little goals and and going along the way and kind of you know taking it as they come. You were in the last uh, Olympics over in Rio. I was, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, can you tell me how a little bit about how your experience then, and uh, what are you looking for uh, to this year's Olympics? Well, uh, that Rio was my first Olympic experience, and it was an amazing time. I enjoyed, like you know, the open ceremony, everything leading up to it, the support from the fans. The families that were there to, you know, be with us through it all. Although we didn't get to spend much time with them when we were there, because you know, like we have a very strict schedule. But I love everything about, you know, like Olympics is one of those things that only a few people get to experience as a athlete or a fan. And just being there was just an unreal experience that, that you know, something that you can always look back onto and. Like, be proud of and although we didn't perform as well as we wanted to I feel like you know that experience is going to benefit us as a group because most of us was the same you know we're the same group that played in Rio and we all know what we want as a group and you know to represent USA each other and you know doing the jersey well because you know there are guys that were with us that started this whole program and just they're, they're still involved but not may, may not be on the playing field but you know they're supporting from afar so we understand that it's much more than us as an individual but winning uh, ultimately winning goals or being in the podium it's what we're looking to to accomplish in in uh, Tokyo when it when the time comes do you have any tips for anyone who wants to be a rugby player there's so many ways that you can go about making a career in rugby as with other sports. You know, they're, they're crossover athletes who, 
who are, you know, made it through the team, like track and field and, you know, so with other sports, but like it, for me, like rugby is growing a lot in America since, you know, I've started playing, uh, you know, there's been professional leagues now, the MLR and a lot, there's a lot more in, in, you know, like youth and school and all the communities. So you have those resources. Uh, but for me, if, if you're really trying to make a full-time career out of rugby is really sticking into, you know, being, being active with, with, you know, with the teams that you're, you're around, wherever you, you may be and really perfecting your uh, basic skills. Yep. Uh, when I tell you, when I'm saying basic skills, if you're looking to be a, become a professional rugby player, I, you know, I tell these to my teammates as well. And, and the, the high school team that I'm coaching with, uh, with now at the moment is like, if you could perfect your basic skills, it, it will, it will take you far in, in, in the game of rugby. Like simple thing, like passing and catching and making your tackles. Like, like those little things, I know it gets repetitive in training and game sometime, but when pressure situation comes, uh, in the game, you know, like those are the things that you rely on day in, day out when you're training, like the basics and it helps you through any level of rugby. It's all that muscle yeah. memory, then just repetition. And then, you know, when it's time to do it, you can, go, you can do it on yeah, the big so stage. Like, right? You know, like Steph Curry will shoot the three regardless because he does, because like he does it so many times in his training and practice. So like he will shoot the three in the game and that's, you know, that's what he does best. So he's not going to go away from it. That was Martin Yosefo. He's on the USA national team, and he hopes to play in the U.S. Major League Rugby after the Olympics. That is it for today. Tomorrow we plan to take a closer look at the impact to the visitor industry. Is your job affected? Had your hours cut? You've been laid off? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember that all our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.